Welcome to Cold Case Western Australia, the official podcast series of the Western Australian Police Force Special Crime Squad. The squad's remit includes all unsolved homicides and long-term missing persons who are presumed murdered in the world's largest single policing jurisdiction, a beat of some two and a half million square kilometres. My name is Neil Poe and I'm your host. Before we start, Aboriginal and Torres Strait listeners are advised this podcast contains names of people who have died. In this episode, we look at the disappearance and suspected abduction and murder of 12-year-old Aboriginal schoolboy James Patrick Taylor, known to everyone as Jimmy, at Derby in the Kimberley region in August 1974. Jimmy's body has not been found. This is one of the oldest investigations on the Special Crime Squad's case list. Jimmy came from a large family. He was one of nine siblings. For them, his unexplained disappearance has meant nearly 50 years of trauma and anguish, almost half a century of waiting and hoping for some news. Yeah, it's just that thinking, you know, wondering. You just don't know. And that's the hardest part of it too, not knowing anything. That's Jimmy's mother, Evelyn Henderson, who's now well into her 80s. Speaking from Derby, where she still lives, Evelyn says she's more desperate than ever to find out what happened to her second eldest son. Love sat and thought about him all the time, you know, and uh, prayed, you know, said prayers and to show, asked God to show me some clues, maybe, you know. Evelyn, what is it that you remember most about Jimmy? Even after all this time, what are your most vivid memories of him? He loved uh, Cat Stevens. He was a fan of Cat Stevens. You, you heard of Cat Stevens? Yes, the singer. Singer, yeah. And he, he used to love playing the record, his record, on the old gramophone we had. He used to sit there and sing, sing along <laughs> with him. You know, and he used to whistle, you know, he's happy. He's happy kid. Jimmy's eldest sister, Lynn Henderson Yates, was 17 when he went missing. He was um, a very fresh-looking young boy and he was always very meticulous about his appearance. So he was always walking around with a comb in his back pocket and he'd always be combing his hair. And it was a beautiful brown with a bit of blonde streaking through it and and waves. And um, he was uh, a very confident happy and smiling uh, young boy. He had beautiful white teeth and every time you looked at him he was always smiling and these white teeth were flashing all the time and um, he was confident, he was outgoing. Um, he, he could never walk anywhere, he was always seemed to be in a hurry, always wanting to run. Jimmy disappeared after going to the local delicatessen, about 500 metres from home, 
late on the afternoon of August the 29th, 1974. It should have been a quick errand to buy some lollies and soft drinks for himself and his siblings. Lynn says it was a simple task which he had done before on his own. Many times, and also um, it was the same route as going to school. Okay, what happened then when he didn't come home? As the time um, went on and the sun was starting to go down, we were starting to get curious about, well, where is Jimmy? You know, why hasn't he come back? Because we all had a golden rule um, that everyone had to be home by sundown. And mum was very strict about that and so was dad. And um, so that was ingrained in us. As it got darker, we were wondering, well, where is he? Why hasn't he come back? Has he stopped by a friend's house? We weren't sure. Um, And then as time progressed, we realised it was, you know, it was a mystery why he hadn't come back. So the next day, um, because we didn't have a car in those days and we lived down the other end of town, anywhere we went, we had to walk. So we had to wait till the next morning. And then we started to walk around town. And this went on for a number of days, asking people, have you seen Jimmy? Um, Thinking he might have stayed over with friends, uh, might have stayed over with cousins and family. We had a lot of, and still do have a lot of family in Derby. Um, and then as time went on, we thought, well, we have uncles who actually, who work on stations, you know. Has uh, Jimmy decided to go and visit one of the uncles on stations? We couldn't work out exactly what had happened and why he hadn't returned home. And did it cross anyone's mind at that stage that he might have been abducted? Was that a, a possibility, you know, in those days? No, definitely not. Um, That thought didn't enter our minds. Having a child abducted, nobody knew of anything like that. No one had any experience of that. There was no TV. Nobody had a newspaper. There was the radio. But locally, it had never happened to anyone else. Um, So that thought never crossed our mind. Derby is approximately 2,200 kilometres by road north of Perth and 220 kilometres northeast of the Kimberley Regional Centre of Broome. It's closer to Darwin than Perth. It's perched on the edge of the King Sound, home to Australia's biggest tides, which can peak at close to 12 metres. It's the western gateway to the famed Gibb River Road and serves as a service town for the local pastoral, mining and tourism industries. In 1974, its population was just over 2,000. And Lynn says back then it was a bit of a sleepy hollow. As any remote town in a particularly hot area, life moves very slowly. And, uh, you know, it was a very quiet town. Everybody knew each other. After ruling out all other possible explanations for Jimmy's mysterious disappearance, his father reported him missing to police on September the 5th, 1974. 
In 2014, WA coroner Barry King held an inquest into Jimmy's disappearance. In his findings, he said it was apparent that the local police in 1974 quickly reached the view that Jimmy had run away from home because of arguments with his dad, who had disciplined him with a belt a few days beforehand. Dad uh, did um, smack Jimmy and with a belt. However, it's not as it sounds. It, uh, it wasn't something that was so bad that Jimmy would have thought, oh, I'm going to run away. I mean, all of us kids got a smack here and there and none of us thought, oh, I'm going to run away. So we've looked at it ourselves and, you know, we don't believe that that could be a cause of why Jimmy uh, disappeared. For Jimmy's mum, the idea that he would run away was inconceivable. He wouldn't do that, no. He'd never leave us. Detective Superintendent Rowan Ingalls is in charge of the Special Crime Division, and I asked him about the initial police response. It's no secret that the family believes that when Jimmy went missing in 1974, they thought that the local police were too easily convinced that Jimmy was a runaway. And the coroner, Barry King, also referenced that, that that seemed to be where the investigation went. Do you think that more could have been done at the time? With the benefit of hindsight, there is no doubt that more action could have been taken at the time that Jimmy was noticed to have disappeared. The sad occurrence of a 12-year-old boy uh, not returning home after going down to the local shops would these days attract a massive amount of police attention and commitment to resolving that mystery as soon as possible. Unfortunately, in this case, that didn't happen. But what we've got to do is move forward and do our utmost now to get justice for the family, as you mentioned before, nearly 50 years later. Why just listen to this cold case when you could be helping us solve it? We are recruiting. Visit WA Police Force's Let's Join Forces website to find out more. The officer in charge of the Special Crime Squad, Detective Inspector Daryl Cox, says the Jimmy Taylor investigation is one of the more challenging cases the squad has on its books. There's obviously no crime scene, we've got no body, there's a limited number of witnesses, and we're left with no forensic opportunities given that we've got no crime scene and no body. So this is a very difficult investigation for us. One of those witnesses was a woman who lived near the deli, who contacted police in 2011 following some media coverage on Jimmy's case. She's come forward and said that she was on her veranda, reading the newspaper when Jimmy walked past. She knew the Taylor family, so she knew Jimmy. She recalls an old, dusty, four-wheel drive vehicle stop. And she's not sure if the male either pushed or persuaded Jimmy to get into the vehicle. Another witness told police a similar story in 2012, although he said Jimmy was near a different set of shops and he wasn't sure of the date. 
Back in 1974, police also received a number of reported sightings of Jimmy after August the 29th. Unfortunately, in nearly every investigation of this type that I've been involved in, there's always unconfirmed sightings of the missing person at different locations. Now, we investigate those sightings, but in Jimmy's case, we've had a number of sightings where he was in Broome, Beagle Bay. We even had him in Carnarvon at one stage. Unfortunately, these are all uncorroborated and with no evidence at all to put Jimmy at any location after he leaves the delicatessen. Jimmy's case sat with the Police Missing Persons Unit until 2006, when two things happened. An audit of all unsolved homicides and long-term missing persons in WA was conducted by the then newly formed Special Crime Squad. And in October 2006, the ABC broadcast a TV documentary on convicted child killer James Ryan O'Neill, formerly known as Lee Anthony Bridgart. O'Neill abducted and murdered nine-year-old Tasmanian schoolboy Ricky Smith in February 1975. That horrific crime occurred less than six months after Jimmy disappeared. Alarmingly, O'Neill was also accused of murdering another nine-year-old boy in Tasmania in April 1975, as well as six other abductions of young boys in Tasmania and Victoria. Richard McCready was a detective sergeant on the police team investigating the two child murders. He later rose through the ranks to become Tasmania's police commissioner. Richard says in his 43 years as a police officer, O'Neill was the most evil offender against children he encountered. He didn't have any sense of remorse or regret at all and that may well be in part because uh, in a homosexual uh, tiff in his early life he was shot in the head uh, by his friend, uh, partner, lover and he suffered frontal lobe damage but that didn't come out immediately but I probably with all the people that I dealt with over the time never ever dealt with a more dispassionate person and that was absolutely evident when he agreed that he would take us down to Eagle Hawk Neck and uh, right up into the back of the bush and show us uh, where he had put Ricky to death. Uh, and when we arrived, I remember he had a cigarette in his hand and he said, there it is. Uh, and it wasn't, there's Ricky or there's the young man or there's the person I killed. It was, there it is. And at that stage, uh, sadly, it was skeletal. The circumstances of Ricky Smith's abduction and murder are both brutal and bizarre. The notable thing for the listeners, I guess, was that this uh, happened on the day that O'Neill was due to go to the Royal Hobart Hospital and pick up his wife and his newborn child. Uh, for some reason, he ended up south of the uh, Lufra Hotel that he was managing and Ricky was in the washway, uh, just paddling and doing what kids do. He managed to coerce him into the car. He uh, took him up the bush as he did with his victims in Victoria. And uh, it was well up an old uh, bush track and he had his way with him. And then uh, very sadly, 
Uh, he used a large rock to cave in his skull, crush him. Because Ricky Smith had been seen playing in a washway near the coast just before he disappeared, there was some speculation that he may have drowned and his body washed out to sea. O'Neill, unknown to Tasmanian police under that name at the time, was one of the volunteers who helped search for the missing boy. It wasn't until a series of child abductions in late March and April of 1975 that Tasmanian police realised they were dealing with a serial offender. The second nine-year-old boy, Bruce Colin Wilson, was abducted and murdered on the 26th of April in chillingly similar circumstances to Ricky Smith. Over a four-week period leading up to that murder, two more boys aged 14 and 10 were abducted in separate incidents. They were the lucky ones, managing to escape their captor, who Tasmanian police say they later identified as O'Neill in suspect lineups. There was also an attempted abduction just three days before Bruce Wilson's murder. In all of those cases, police say O'Neill approached the children in his car. O'Neill was charged with the second murder, but a prosecution policy in place at the time meant the case never went to trial. Richard McCready explains why. There was provision for a concurrent sentence, but no provision, as I understand it, for a consecutive sentence. So uh, the DPP at the time, uh, who was a very astute lawyer and went on to be a, a judge, Henry Cosgrove, uh, decided that it, it simply wasn't, it didn't serve any public interest to have uh, the, the second murder uh, put to trial and to, to put the people through uh, the trauma of, of that trial. But he uh, did a very astute and very cunning thing in many ways. He put a file note uh, onto the file to say that all the psychiatric evidence in relation to O'Neill indicated that he would be more likely rather than less likely to offend if he was ever released. And of course, it's a matter of record now that O'Neill is the longest serving uh, prisoner in Tasmania, and it's most unlikely that he'll get out, but that's up to the parole board in the fullness of time. The ABC documentary on James O'Neill was called The Fisherman, A Journey Into the Mind of a Killer. Former Victorian crime reporter Janine Widgery was the driving force behind it. She was investigating possible links between O'Neill and other unsolved child murders in Australia, with a particular interest in the three Beaumont children who disappeared from an Adelaide beach in 1969. So we started doing some background research into him and found out that, you know, he had been charged here in Melbourne back in the early 70s of um, raping several young boys and then took off to the Kimberley, jump bail, took off to the Kimberley. Those charges were detailed at Jimmy's inquest. It was 1971 when Victorian police charged O'Neill under his birth name of Lee Anthony Bridgart with 13 counts of abduction and indecent assault in relation to four boys aged 10 to 12 in Ferntree Gully. In at least three of the four sets of charges, it was alleged he lured the victims into his car by asking for directions to a local railway station. 
After skipping bail and moving to Western Australia in March 1971, Bridgar changed his name to James Ryan O'Neill. He worked on a number of cattle stations in the Kimberley region, and when Janine Widgery contacted them as part of her documentary research, she says they all clearly remembered O'Neill, even though it was more than 20 years on. And they all talked about this guy who claimed he'd been shot in Vietnam, couldn't ride a horse and really did nothing at all other than muck around on the stations, was known to take the young boys out fishing and shooting out on the cattle stations. And um, that's where sort of the doco got its basis from, the genesis of doco, was the fishermen. On top of his love of fishing, the inquest heard that O'Neill was fascinated with guns. As Richard McCready mentioned earlier, O'Neill was accidentally shot in the head by a friend using a handgun in 1969. The injury damaged the right frontal lobe of his brain and caused a loss of smell, loss of hearing in his left ear and impaired the vision in his right eye. In the Kimberley, O'Neill variously told people he was an accountant, a Vietnam War veteran and an ASIO operative. He claimed he'd been shot in the head in Vietnam, with another version that his mother's gangster boyfriend was responsible for the shooting. In court in Tasmania, O'Neill was described as a pathological liar. During her research of O'Neill's time in WA, Janine Widgery spoke with a former police officer from Fitzroy Crossing, who told her about a schoolboy who disappeared from Derby in August 1974, Jimmy's case. And she was able to establish that O'Neill was living in that community at the same time. Yes, he was working in Derby. His wife, Carol, had been working in Derby at the time. Um, there was a young boy who had gone missing in Derby and it wasn't long after that, after the boy had gone missing, we've, we've traced him that he headed back to Tassie with Carol and settled in Hobart. When the O'Neill documentary was broadcast in October 2006, Jimmy Taylor's family were tuned in. We uh, all watched it and obviously were horrified. In fact, mum went on antidepressants after that, um, after watching it, and she was traumatised for so long and she's still on it now. Detective Inspector Daryl Cox said police were also watching that night. As a result of that documentary, we then did a complete review and now, uh, since 2006, Jimmy's investigation is being treated as an unsolved homicide. Daryl, can I ask, when did WA Police become aware that O'Neill had lived in Derby after he murdered the nine-year-old boy in Tasmania? The first WA Police became aware was 2006. And that's unfortunate because if we had found out in 1975, after O'Neill had uh, committed murder on a nine-year-old boy, that would have set alarm bells off and uh, a massive investigation would have been conducted in Western Australia. But unfortunately, back in 1975, we haven't got the electronic media that we've got today. We haven't got the intelligence systems that we've got in place. And um, WA Police 
didn't hear about it until 2006. A second, more expansive review of Jimmy's case was commenced by the Special Crime Squad in 2011. Then a detective senior sergeant, Daryl Cox, was one of the lead investigators. O'Neill was interviewed by the Special Crime Squad officers in Hayes Prison Farm in Tasmania in 2013. Although he didn't want to go on uh, video and have his interview recorded, he did confirm a number of things for us when he spoke to us. One of those that he confirmed that he was in Derby in 1974 and he confirmed that he had access to a four-wheel drive at that time. But he denied any knowledge of Jimmy Taylor or having anything to do with his disappearance. O'Neill remains one of a number of unalibied suspects in this investigation. O'Neill was a suspect purely on his MO. He's a convicted child murderer. He has killed a young nine-year-old child six months after Jimmy went missing in um, Tasmania. If you look at his offending pre and post the disappearance of Jimmy Taylor, so the offences in Victoria and the offences in Tasmania shortly after, within six months of leaving Derby, his MO was always to lure young boys into his vehicle and he had no previous association with any of these victims. And he come up with a, with a ruse or a, or a certain uh, way to get them into the vehicle. And he did that in, both in Victoria and Tasmania. Here's former Tasmanian Police Commissioner Richard McCready again. It's a very consistent pattern when you think about it. And when you think of his insatiable appetite in Tasmania, five, maybe six opportunities within a few short months, uh, one can only ponder uh, what he'd done whilst he was wandering around the rest of Australia. Coroner Barry King described O'Neill as a disturbed homosexual pedophile. However, in his 2014 inquest findings, he said the following, and I quote, There is no direct evidence that Mr O'Neill abducted Jimmy. There is, however, circumstantial evidence to indicate that he could have done so and perhaps was likely to have done so. Not only was O'Neill living in Derby at the time, he also had access to a vehicle similar to the one the female witness said she saw Jimmy getting into before he disappeared. But on the basis of the evidence available, the coroner said he was unable to conclude to the required level of satisfaction whether O'Neill either abducted or killed Jimmy. In his findings from the 2014 coronial inquest, Barry King found that Jimmy's death had been established beyond all reasonable doubt, but that the death occurred on an unknown date at an unknown place from an unknown cause, which is an awful lot of unknowns, isn't it? What would it mean for the family now to finally get some answers? It would mean a lot to the family. It would mean so much because, remember, even though it happened in 1974, we it, it's still fresh in our mind, it's still fresh in our heart. We still see Jimmy. 
we still talk about Jimmy, particularly on his birthday. We, we recall the day that he disappeared. And to be able to have some answers would mean a lot, particularly to mum. Mum, as she's gotten older, she keeps having these reoccurring dreams that she's lost in the bush and uh, she can't find her way out of the bush. Now, she she believes that that's Jimmy, that's Jimmy in the bush who is lost and can't find his way out. So the impact of Jimmy disappearing remains with us. It, it still um, hurts to know that our young brother just disappeared. Where is he? What happened to him? Did he suffer? To have such a young, bright boy just disappear in an instant is a horrible thing to live with. So for us to find out about Jimmy now, although it's nearly 50 years, would mean a lot to mum and certainly all his brothers and sisters. In recent years, a second, previously unknown paedophile has emerged as a suspect in this investigation. In 2020, former Derby resident John Melvin Bodie was convicted of 57 charges of rape and historic sexual abuse against 13 boys aged between 9 and 16. The abuse took place at Derby and other Kimberley region locations between 1970 and 1986. Bodie was a former gardener at the Derby District High School and also involved in the local motocross club. He was sentenced to a minimum 17 years in jail and won't be eligible to apply for parole until 2035, when he'll be 93 years of age. Lynn Henderson Yates says news of Bodie's crimes delivered another body blow to Jimmy's family. We were horrified when we found out. And it's actually hard to deal with that realisation now, thinking if only we had known back then. Um, and I think, well, I was 17. How is it that I didn't hear anything either, you know, um, a young adult? And uh, nobody had any idea. If only we knew, if only we had an inkling Things could have been prevented. How is it possible that this happened in this small, sleepy town without anyone speaking about it? Do you know if the family or Jimmy specifically had any contact with either O'Neill or Bodie? I don't know, and we don't know anything about O'Neill. We never knew he was in town, but in terms of Bodie, he was there for a lot longer. Now, Bodhi was not somebody who came to our house. We never spoke about him. However, he did live in the back of us. Now, I have no idea whether there was contact between Jimmy and Bodhi. And that's one of the great mysteries is, was there? Um, I don't know. But at the time, we certainly didn't know anything about these two pedophiles in Derby. Detective Superintendent Rowan Ingle said he was not in a position to say much about Bodie, apart from confirming he is on the Special Crime Squad's radar. 
Look, I don't want to delve deeply into Mr Bodie. Suffice to say, he has been interviewed as part of this investigation. We're certainly aware of his existence, aware of his antecedents, but I have nothing more I can add in relation to him at this point in time. In May 2023, the WA state government announced $1 million rewards for all unsolved homicides and long-term missing persons presumed murdered. We are very confident that there is someone out there, perhaps multiple people, who know something relevant to the investigation into the suspected murder of Jimmy Taylor. Now, the million dollars is an absolutely enticing reason for people to come forward and share that information with us today, and we ask them to do so. This investigation, the Jimmy Taylor investigation, is nearly 50 years old now. Do you really hold that hope of solving it after all this time? Look, Neil, regardless of how long ago this incident occurred, we certainly maintain there is a very realistic proposition that we can solve this tragic occurrence for the family and bring some form of closure to them. Lynn Henderson-Yates has this message for anyone in the community who does know something. The family have always hoped that there would be somebody out there who knew something about what happened to Jimmy, that they would have the compassion in their heart, the courage in their heart to come forward and to talk with us about what they might know about Jimmy. We're not here to judge. We're not here to blame. We know that there are pressures when people know things. We understand that. What we're very keen to hear is the story around what people might know about Jimmy and why Jimmy didn't come home in 1974. So we would encourage people to think what they will be doing for our family, for mum. Could you imagine how she would feel if she knew a little bit more about what happened to Jimmy? Detective Superintendent Rowan Ingle says Special Crime Squad investigators are committed to getting those answers for Jimmy's family. During the course of the investigation, I've met with some of Jimmy's family and it's heartbreaking to see what they've gone through. As you mentioned, I think Jimmy's mum is, is in her 80s. Uh, this is incredibly sad. It's a tragedy that a 12-year-old boy has gone missing uh, never to be seen again by his family or his friends. And that really is the drive for our detectives, our forensic officers, is to try and bring some answers for the family who have gone now 48 years not knowing what happened. That's unacceptable and we want to bring them some form of closure. That's our objective. Do you think you could help us close this cold case? We're recruiting and applications are open now. Visit WA Police Force's Let's Join Forces website to find out more. Lynn says the family is desperate to know where Jimmy is. And one of the main priorities that we have, what we would like to do, and we've been delaying it for many decades because we didn't know what happened to Jimmy. But we have a brother, uh, Gordon, who's buried in the Derby Cemetery. And what we would like to do is to be able to bring Jimmy home and bury him with Gordon. And 
it's got to the point where if we don't find Jimmy's body and we're not able to bring him home, then we will put up a plaque naming Gordon and Jimmy as being together in that grave. It's really for the family to be able to bring Jimmy home, not to leave him lying somewhere out there in the bush alone. That's actually what hurts most is this idea that he's abandoned somewhere. Detective Inspector Cox says police haven't given up on finding Jimmy's body and as recently as September 2023, a tip-off from a member of the public led to a fresh search of an isolated area of bushland not far from Derby. We received some information of a possible disposal site for Jimmy Taylor up in Derby. So as a result of that, a number of detectives flew to Derby and with some forensic officers, we conducted a search of the area. So at this stage, uh, the search was conducted, a number of exhibits were identified and they'll be forensically tested. If you have any information about the disappearance of Jimmy Taylor, please call Crime Stoppers on 1800 333 000. Remember, there's a $1 million reward on offer. For more information about Jimmy's case and other unsolved homicides in Western Australia, please visit the Crime Stoppers WA website. Cold Case Western Australia is the official podcast of the WA Police Special Crime Squad. Written and produced by Neil Poe, editor Troy Lemmy, WA Police Force Advisor Luke Elliott.